This episode of Practice Disrupted is supported by Monograph, the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. And Twinmotion, the simple, real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. Welcome back to Practice Disrupted. Today, we're kicking off season three after a very short summer break or siesta and excited to bring you all new content. Behind the scenes, we've been planning and thinking through 20 new episodes with all new voices who are helping to disrupt the practice of architecture. The show was created really to discuss the changing nature of architectural practice, and we've all been through quite a few changes over the course of 2020 and 2021. Through our exploration of themes across two seasons, we've discussed a wide range of topics from individual career advancement to specific business strategies firms can use to elevate their practice. In this upcoming season, we'll continue to expand our research in the areas of innovation, new business strategy, professional development, entrepreneurship, EDI, and architecture and. Across our growing list of episodes, you can find a diverse range of experts that dive further into each of these topics. Every season, we bring on a guest moderator to help us kick off the show. This season is no different, and we are excited to do a crossover episode with our friend, Catherine Meng, who hosts the Design Voice podcast. Janine, why don't you jump into her bio? Catherine Ming is an architect at DLR Group in San Francisco. Her broad design experience includes projects in the multifamily housing, higher education, workplace, and commercial sectors. Before moving to San Francisco, Catherine practiced in Shanghai and New York City. Catherine is also the creator and host of the Design Voice podcast, which seeks to elevate and amplify the voices of women in architecture, engineering, and construction. Each episode features honest conversations with women who shape the built environment. By sharing her guests' stories, Catherine hopes that her podcast serves as a source of inspiration, education, and empowerment to everyone in or aspiring to join these professions. Catherine received her Bachelor's of Architecture degree from Cornell University. She lives in San Francisco with her husband, toddler daughter, and multi-poo. Let's cut to the conversation. Okay, Catherine, all yours. <laughs> um, I'm excited to do this with y'all. <laughs> I know, this is so great. Like, I remember seeing karaoke with you at Quan Hemney's office, so yeah. now I feel like it's come full circle. We're, we're doing a podcast together. It's such a we're small very, world. We're, we're bonding. <laughs> and it is. And then I was in your series earlier last year. Yeah. And we always talked about wanting to do kind of a longer extended version. So here we are. Yeah, I know. So you guys hit 40 episodes, which is crazy. That's a, and like within what a span of a year and a half. Like that's crazy. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was kind of our pandemic project. <laughs> 
did it start I don't remember now remind me did did you both did you start the show during the pandemic unintentionally yes we were we were talking about doing a podcast and then the pandemic hit and it the Mm -hmm. timing just kind of collided at the same time and because of the pandemic I think it really allowed us to dive deep on it and have a anchor point to the show that actually was you know part of the thesis it it, Mm -hmm. unintentionally it was like it validated a lot of what we were talking about yeah big huge thanks to our production team over at Gable Media I mean without them like we wouldn't be able to have hit uh 40 episodes so and and the show wouldn't sound nearly as good so I've been wanting to do a podcast for a really long time and Mm -hmm. I don't you know the architect in me is like if I can't put it out in a certain uh, like put out a show of a certain quality then I don't know if I want to put it out into the world yeah um I know that's like not what entrepreneurs do but that's that's definitely the architect the architect side of me driving driving that line of thinking uh so with without them I I mean we definitely would not be where we are today yeah shout out to all the editors listening to this right now yes (laughs) did you originally intended for to be like a limited run series we initially planned for 12, and then we heard that other Gable shows had signed on, and they were doing 20, and we're like, mm, we could do 20. And then I think it naturally evolved into, well, like, what does the next season look like? Mm-hmm. I don't think we set any expectations coming in. Yeah. What does your next season look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I think we've learned a lot. You know, now we've done two seasons and we've had on, I think, over 50 guests on the show. So just speaking to so many different individuals, we realize like, okay, there's there's really – they're validating what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not just Evelyn and I having these thoughts on our own. There are a lot of practitioners out there that feel these things. And so by bringing them forward and having conversations about them, I feel like we've been – We've learned a lot, and that's helped us focus more into additional topics that we want to cover, figuring out, like, where the gaps are that we're not discussing. And so I I see it as, like, it's a body of research, and this has just allowed us to really sharpen our focus. Mm -hmm. You'll see a lot of the things that our listeners have told us they liked. So we are definitely going to be continuing various different series, like The Architecture and Mm -hmm. we'll have a few of those individuals. I think, well, I know Janine and I want to continue kind of our future of the architecture, and I want to have another conversation with Asian American architects. Mm -hmm. We're actually hoping to group those into a more structured program that then firms can offer as a way to actually begin to have conversations about EDI, especially if their leadership um, is not currently reflective of where they want to go yeah. as as a thought starter, as a conversation starter to really begin to help firms move in that direction. And then I think, you know, Janine and I talked about trying to tie everything back to practice in a more realistic sense, which may kind of seem at odds with where practice of architecture was headed and mm-hmm. what practice disrupted is. But the ultimate goal is to move the profession forward in a meaningful way. So in order to do that, we need to make sure that we enable the small steps as well as the large steps. Mm-hmm. That's right. So we're, you know, we're doing a little bit more on 
additional tactical ideas on how to bring these ideas forward into practice. We're speaking with more architects next season in firms. And and we're also going to be speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs. I think that's another part of our interest area is mm-hmm. this like, you know, next generation of like new leaders that are coming in to lead the profession. Yeah. Do you have a sense of who your listeners are? Like what you know, what they do, like, are there small firms, big firms, are they entrepreneurs, like age ranges, just, you know, general demographics of your listeners? Do you? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you get think... a lot of, like, feedback from listeners. And so, like, who are, who are those who are one those of the people? hardest things. Yeah, I, I mean, I do feel like, I'll, I'll let Janine elaborate, but I do feel like that that is one of the hardest things when it comes to podcast is really understanding who is listening and the effect that it's having but anyways Janine go ahead we do only because I I, for me I I have to use it as a metric in order to understand how to adjust and move forward I need that feedback Um, it's really hard for me to be in a vacuum so I have been really adamant about reaching out on social media and to people that I know are listening and trying to prompt feedback Mm -hmm. but I've also been really surprised I think that we we attract really excited leaders in our industry who are thinking about things differently. So that's like a no-brainer. And then every once in a while, we get these amazing comments from young professionals who work in firms and they're like, they feel heard. And so those are the young emerging professionals that are sitting at their desks doing waterproofing details and feel mm-hmm. maybe pretty miserable. And so... I think that's part of our audience. And then we have also heard from practitioners who run firms and they're <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, we're listening and we're trying to take in what you're saying. You're saying a lot. Help me get this into a digestible way that I can implement it in my firm. So we we, we have a big range, like people who like get it and people who want to get it. So I feel like we have a big responsibility to try to address different points of view. Well, part of the reason why I ask is because I'm curious how that all plays into how you determine what your episode's about. And maybe this is getting to, you know, like behind the scenes of podcasting and like <laughs> the listeners don't really care. But I, I don't know, I feel like I struggle with like talking, like interviewing people or talking about topics that like I personally am interested in. But then it's like, is this the kind of content that like people want to listen to? Um but it's like you mentioned, it's like so hard to, I feel like podcasting, especially you're like in such a vacuum and you really have to like drag feedback out of people. And so I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out, you know, where you want things to go or like what topics you want to cover. But I guess with your show, you have like a very strong thesis or point of view. So maybe everything is sort of revolves around, you know, a couple of central ideas. I mean, I think we're constantly pivoting. Wait, that's the beauty of it and yeah. and all the change that is happening in the world right now. So we try to practice what we preach. We do take whatever feedback we get and note it and consider how to adapt overarching themes, like connecting back to practice in a meaningful way that people can then take steps and move forward. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, Janine will like come across an interesting person in General Assembly and she'll be like, what do you think about this? Yeah, to, to the pivot point, we changed like the first season, yeah. like <laughs> Evelyn <Yeah>. and I, <laughs> um, we're learning how to work together and like bringing our ideas forward. And, and so we were, I was very prescriptive. I like 
mapped out. I'm like, these are the topics I want to go through. And um, it was pretty rigid. And so, and then we moved into the second season and I think we ramped up in our confidence on things and there was more, um, less rigidity, more flexibility. We allowed, we didn't, I didn't structure like exactly what needed to flow when it just kind of, whatever we got recorded released when it did, there were a range of topics and we started seeing themes within those topics, which was really helpful. But mm-hmm. we also, I think to to come back to that other question you had about our audience, the other thing I've noticed with our episodes is we typically go into these very niche topics like transitioning from architecture to tech. And what ends up happening is people hear that and then they send it to mm-hmm. their friend because they know their friend is specifically yeah. trying to solve that problem in their career. And so we get a lot of listeners that were referred to the show because of a specific topic and mm-hmm. then they end up listening to some other episodes. So I I don't I'm not convinced our listeners listen to every episode. Mm-hmm. Um I think there are probably some out there that do, but I think we get a lot of like organic growth that comes yeah. in naturally based on the topics that we're talking about. Are there any topics that you haven't talked about yet that you're like itching to to address in future episodes? I would say that there's people that I want to bring on. I don't know if they're central topics. Mm-hmm. I do feel that the act of making podcasts similar to the act of writing that I've kind of used over my own career, just by commentating, like the more you kind of put your voice out in the world, it's easier to actually focus your ideas, yeah. right? Because otherwise, then you have all of these ideas in your head, and no, you don't know which direction that you're going to go into. So this, this is actually obviously not answering your question. But I but I <laughs> but I do feel so. So no, there, there's individual people that I would really love to bring on. I this need for architecture for me to evolve is like the consistent thing that like, and passion that continues to drive me. Mm-hmm. There's always another reason that's going to come on that I'll identify <laughs> <laughs> as to like, yes, see, and that's another reason why we need to change how we are doing things. But rarely ever have I identified that reason and then been like, let's make a whole episode about it. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's, that's a really interesting person. And here, given our point of view, mm-hmm. here's where their narrative fits into that context. Yeah. I agree with what you said about the iterative process of writing and podcasting. Like one of the things that I was thinking about when we were prepping for this is just that for me, like this is a medium where I'm able to explore and nobody is micromanaging me on what I can say or do. Like Evelyn is always very open to like taking an idea that I bounce off of her and we'll workshop it. Like we, we go through a process of trying to figure it out together. And mm-hmm. so I've put ideas out there over the past two seasons that like, maybe it was something that I was thinking about while I was working sometime at some point in the past 10 years and, and exploring it with other people and really talking about it. I, I sometimes feel like, again, validated, like I'm not alone people agree this is something that is not my isolated challenge. And then in some Mm -hmm. instances, I actually change my mind. I might, 
you know, shift my perspective a little bit. And so that it's been really like nice. Actually, it's a it is not a concrete thing. It's very like fluid. And I think when I started the podcast with Evelyn, I was coming out of transitioning from my life in the Bay Area and going into season three, like I'm really looking forward now as a business owner and trying to figure out where am I heading with my company. And I know Evelyn's doing that too. So it has become a, it's like a vehicle for thinking about what do I want to be doing with my business and my career and how do I want to be focusing my research and my energy? Yeah. It's interesting what you sort of just touched on, Evelyn, where you have this drive to change the architecture practice. And and Janine, I know that you, I feel like you sort of feel the same way. And you both aren't, you know, in, I guess, like traditional architecture firms or like in, you know, like traditional practice anymore, but you're sort of in these like architecture adjacent, I don't even know how you would describe it, like architecture adjacent or like related fields, but it seems like you're both also like still really invested in the profession. So like, what is it about it that even though you've kind of left, like sort of keeps you still wanting to like push for change in in the profession? So my answer applies to like all the reasons why I stay involved in the AIA. And it's the people in the architecture community really are an extended family for me. And the way we think is so intrinsically unique to our training. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just a unique community that I love to be a part of. I, when I went and I pursued my MBA, my first year while I was at UCLA before I transitioned to the Presidio, I actively cut ties with anything architecturally. Like I was like, I don't want to be in any real estate development club. I don't want to be in any green building clubs. These were clubs that I could have been in. Mm -hmm. I just like, I'm going to try something new. But because I had already been so involved with, with the AIA, both at California and National, because my circle of friends we're all architects, I found that I really missed that. So in doing that, it bred extra clarity when I came out of school in terms Mm -hmm. of like, I need to do something that is still adjacent to the profession. But at the same time, like all of those issues that I had seen while I was a practicing architect, like those, those are still happening. And now having a more entrepreneurial hat on, now having my business hat on, now being in not only uh, tech, but being in a very intentional company who is so concerned about the development of their people Mm -hmm. and how well they care for employees. There's many reasons why architecture obviously can't support their employees the way technology does, but there's there's so much more that we could be doing out there. You know, I I want to see architects succeed. My thing lately is I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired of all the complaining that I hear from architects about how we've given everything away, how other people have taken over our space. And I was like, okay, well, well, let's do something about it. Let's flip this conversation. Right. Like if, if you, if we were in any other industry, like it's not like, the moonlighters are taking away my job. It's like, you know, or taking away my uh, projects. It's like, okay, what are they doing that I'm not doing that I should be doing to win those projects, right? The the reframe is very different. I just, I wish, I want, I want more architects to think that way. 
Likewise, because I was involved with AIA and AIS coming out of school, and I, you know, I served as national president of AIS, which feels like ancient at this point, but I really mm-hmm. saw the profession as a community. It is a profession. We are an industry that is connected by professionals who are in a network. And mm-hmm. while at the individual scale, when you're working on your computer, it might not feel that way. You're just working on your computer and your project with your client. We are a community, global community of leaders who are working behind a very old profession. And, you know, I reject the idea that when you take a step off this path that you're not part of this community anymore. I went through my school training and I sat at the drafting board and I did all the projects and the critiques and the homework assignments and the studio nights. (laughs) And I did my internship time, which felt like jail for me, but I did it. And (laughs) just because I'm not going to practice in the same way that someone else is doesn't mean that my contributions to the profession are any less significant. I see a place where I can contribute that is meaningful, and that is how I choose to practice. And I am very passionate about this industry, and I want so badly to create change because after going through all of my internship hours and time and coming into this profession that I thought was a professional society and would treat people with dignity, I realized, (laughs) oh, no, they don't. It was heartbreaking in some senses. And I just, I think that's ridiculous. You know, it's time for this industry to move forward and treat people better. And I want to be part of that change. I want to help firms figure out how to design beautiful buildings and still be respectful to their staff and their employees so that people who love this profession can thrive and they don't have to leave and they don't have to feel like they have to go start their career over again because of a recession or because, you know, there's really bad management at their firm. You know, those things can be adjusted. It just has to take someone caring enough to change it. Yeah. Whew. Really like what you just said there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like that mindset of like, I don't know, like if you're not an architect that you're not part of the community anymore, I feel like that mindset is so pervasive even within the architecture community where like if you're not a designer with a capital D, like maybe you're not as successful as an architect if you're, you know, like the for example, like the specifications writer or something. And I feel like there's so many facets to the, you know, like the architecture industry itself, but then all these like tangential, like related fields. But I don't know. I feel like architects, I don't know what it is about the mindset where like people seem kind of snobby to me sometimes about this, where like there's this idea of like how you're supposed to be in the profession. And if at least a lot of the people I speak with, they have a hard time of like letting that idea go and like transitioning to something else, even though like they're clearly, you know, feel like they're in jail, like being an intern somewhere. I don't know what it is about like the architecture profession that has such like this mindset, like hold on people. I think some of that can be traced back to studio culture in a way. Yeah. I feel like it becomes increasingly harder for me to talk about studio culture because I would like to think that it's evolved since I've been in school. 
I know we did a recent grad panel. Maybe it'd be interesting to do like a current student, a, a student, a current student panel to see we can test the theory of like what has evolved in studio culture. But so much of that competitiveness that I felt in studio still holds true mm-hmm. in practice. And we are so protectionist about yeah. everything that we do that I feel like it it's it's harmful because then we can't support one another more broadly mm-hmm. because we are protecting our own individual work so much, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, I have a lot of responses to this and I wish I could, you know, dial it down into a very simplified answer. But I think there's a couple of factors going on psychologically. There's definitely an ego component to it. I think we're taught that there are right and wrong answers in architecture. Like if you think about it from a code standpoint, there are wrong answers. And that's for the protection of, you know, health, safety, welfare. And so when you when you look at it from that standpoint, there's rigidity. When you think about Mm -hmm. it from a design standpoint, there can also be right and wrong answers, especially when you start to get someone who has an ego involved in the design process and feels very strongly about what those right and wrong answers are. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of psychological elements to what's going on. You know, there's the long-term process of the education and the licensing, which is an honor and a very important one that people have to work towards. So nobody... I don't think either Evelyn or and I are suggesting that those credentials or those requirements are not necessary. What we're talking about is culturally yeah. about the soft skills that happen within a firm and how we treat people. And so inconsequential things that maybe aren't prioritized, those are the things that I think really we're talking about in terms of how people are treated and respected and... I think that's where we have the most to gain in terms of how we might change over time as an industry. Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. And Twin Motion. What if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Our friends at Twinmotion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their state-of-the-art technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Rivet, transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, standard or 360-degree VR videos, or presentations. No wonder it's being used by industry leaders like Zaha Hadid Architects and HOK. What's more is you'll have access to the world's largest library of 3D assets to populate your scene. 
Sound complicated? Well, what if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present their biggest ideas in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience? Or that it uses drag and drop assets and the power of Unreal Engine to truly differentiate your projects? To learn more, visit Twinmotion.com. Or to download a free trial today, visit our exclusive URL, twinmotion.link backslash disrupted. That's twinmotion.link backslash disrupted to try Twinmotion for free. It seems like you both are at a place where being you know, more outside of the practice or industry, you have, I don't know, more, more of an ability to actually affect change in a sense. And I feel like it's also the converse of that is being within like a large firm and trying to change the culture from within. And, you know, a question I often ask my guests are, what would your advice be to someone if they're at a firm where they don't have the same like value alignment? Would you recommend they stay and like try and change? Or would you recommend they leave and find a different firm or practice that has the same values? And I don't know what I honestly, I don't know what the answer is. (laughs) I feel like there is value to like staying, you know, within an organization and like trying to change it, but maybe it's more effective if you go somewhere else. So the way that I've been addressing this type of question, um, because I've, I've been there, done that, like I stayed at a firm much longer than I probably should have because I thought there was an opportunity Mm -hmm. to lead. I was told there was an opportunity to lead. And then frankly, that opportunity never came around. So my my response is that I think people should treat their career more like a business. I feel like we tie so much emotion Mm -hmm. to what we do. Inherently, because we are architects, I think this is, I think this is true of every industry, maybe, but I think it's, even more true of architects because of the emotion and passion that go into the making of a project. I hear the countless stories of people staying at our firm, not because they love necessarily the culture of the firm, it's because they love the people that they are working with in their immediate team, mm-hmm. or they love the clients or the project that they are on, you know? So then they create these time-bound things where like, I'm just going to stay at the firm until I wrap this project. But I feel like, I mean, ultimately, the firm leaders are treating their firm as a business. So if you were to treat your career as a business, then you need to make the moves that are right for you, Mm -hmm. kind of independent of the emotion. There is some validity to trying to change from the inside out. I would not be a part of the AIA if I didn't believe it. Yeah. Right. But I am putting myself in a position where I'm a volunteer leader in a big organization. I'm not getting paid (laughs) to be a part of that. And I feel like within the AIA, there's a leadership structure that I am empowered to move myself up in. Within a firm, there's only so much you can do unless you are truly empowered to move forward. So I would say to those individuals, who find themselves in the position that sometimes leaving is just as powerful as staying and trying to change that if you leave and others follow for the leadership in that firm, like that's also a sign that they need to change. And sometimes that's the sign that they need to actually create the change, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I, I feel like people have to do what's right for them. If you can withstand it and if you actually see change happening, 
by all means stay, but I've, I've definitely been in the position where I got my hopes up and it just yeah. didn't happen. Yeah. I've tried both approaches of staying and leaving. And I think there's value in both. When you stay, you kind of have to learn from what each challenge is trying to teach you. And, you know, there's value in that and the patience and looking for long-term ways to make incremental changes over time. Personally, I'm not actually a very patient person, so that's very difficult for me to do. And in the instances that I've done that, um, I end up being really frustrated. But, you know, the metric that I use is once I have a goal in mind that I want for myself, I I find that it's really hard for me to like put it aside, especially if I see like there's like a really clear path forward that's not being implemented. When I've stayed, I've tried to work on my personal goals and like whatever the goals of the company are at the same time and try and figure out ways where can the values align, where do they align, where am I maybe a little bit like have a blind spot. But up until the point that I realized that my goal within that company isn't going to be able to be reached. And at that point, that's when I've learned I've, I have to move on personally. And I'm not mm-hmm. afraid of like change anymore. I used to be, it sounded really intimidating when you change jobs, like at the beginning of your career, but like now I've done it a few times and it's, it's not really that bad. And I think yeah. you learn something from every time you go through kind of a transition process about yourself. And looking back, I would say, the things that at some point I probably identified as really hard and was frustrated by, like, I think now I can, you know, I can see how they like added value in some ways to helping me grow personally. But yeah, I think you have to just kind of like decide what your own value system is and like what you're willing to sit with and not. And when you reach that threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something I personally struggle with a lot because I feel like I'm sort of in the opposite situation of you guys were like I'm at a large firm and it's like deep in this like large corporate firm and I like never intended to work at a large corporate firm right like I was at a small small firm that had like a great culture that Janine you know well and then we were and then we were acquired by DLR group and so all of a sudden now like I basically like woke up the next day and like was part of this like huge corporate structure and I'm still sort of working through that like oh do I want to be at a large firm or do I prefer a medium firm and I think a lot of it has to do with what you said too Evan we're like like I like the people in my office a lot you know like it's still the same culture and like firm and people that it was before but now we're just sort of this like little office within this like giant organization and yeah, I just wonder, like, what my role should be within all of this. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like if people are at a place where they feel like they have a have a voice and, and the power to, like, say something, they should. And I feel like I'm comfortable enough to, like, say things without being worried that I'll be, like, fired or something. But it's, like, how far do I want to push it, right? Like, how how much do I want to stick my own neck out there or, like, how much do you want to push for change as opposed to just like if your life is fine then like continuing on your life even though I don't know like if you have the power should you say something it's like something I I struggle with a lot I mean I think it comes back to values and I would say that the thing that I've learned and I would recommend for you and anyone listening is just like 
you have to be really clear about what's important to you and what the non-negotiables are. So like for me, I knew coming into this industry, being a leader was really important to me. So if I was putting into situations where I was not allowed to lead, I didn't have a voice, I wasn't being asked to speak up, or I was actually being, in some instances, asked to not speak, those things are non-negotiables for me. I can't do that. That's not who I am. And it's not why I went to architecture school. It's not why I want to work at your firm. So you have to understand those things about yourself so that you can understand when you get into situations like that, why you're leaving. And Mm -hmm. in any change that you make, they're going to be trade-offs. So like if you go from like a small firm you're going to have a set of variables that you'll like and you won't like. If you go to a large firm, you're going to have a set of variables that you like and you don't like. And so there will be problems and challenges regardless. You just have to decide which ones you can live with. Like, And some people can live with it. Like they're, they're fine being put in that role and it doesn't bother them. So I would say like just being really clear about like what you want to get out of that job and using that as a metric for how long you want to stay. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the people you've interviewed or a lot of the topics you've talked about on your, on your podcast are you know, around entrepreneurship and people who are crafting their own type of practice. But I think from, you know, from where I sit, a lot of the architects, I know they work for other people. You know, even if it's a small firm or a large firm, like you're, you're working for someone else. And so... I don't know, what are your thoughts on how people who don't have their own practice or don't want to start their own practice, like they're happy within a firm, but like, you know, how can they push for change in the profession? Like, what can you, what can individuals do to push for change? I mean, my, my approach, there's always room for change, right? And we are where we are because we haven't changed for so long. (laughs) But I I think independent of where you are, I I would hope and, you know, would love to get feedback from any of our listeners out there. I would hope that they can take some of the learnings about being more entrepreneurship and and apply that more internally. Mm -hmm. The the onboarding process at Slack, the, the recommended onboarding process that I've been researching, you know, companies that have a year long onboarding process are much more likely to have happier productive employees in their first year than people that have like an orient a one day one week orientation process but part of the success of that onboarding process is is continuous feedback mm-hmm. too right and inviting conversation and inviting you know even your interns have something to say about how well your intern program went and how well like it served them over the course of the summer that they were at your firm. So ultimately, all businesses should be finding ways to improve everything that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you find, if you're an individual, like we call them individual contributors in tech, <laughs> we don't actually have a name for them in the architecture firm. But if you even are like in a drafting role and all you're doing is picking up red lines, like is is there something that you're consistently picking up that you're like, oh, if if we did this, if we just changed our standard detail, we, we wouldn't have to continue to get like respond to this red line. Mm-hmm. You know, how many, how many times have we gone into the building department and because we haven't updated our detail, they come back with this comment, like maybe we should relook at our library. 
maybe you're in a firm that doesn't even have a library and you want to build that library. I feel like there's always moments to be entrepreneurial within a firm or to think about where's an opportunity for incremental improvement. And I think that's kind of the mindset that I feel like the profession has to have to begin to move things forward. It will ultimately be up to the firm leadership in terms of whether or not they actually listen <laughs> listen to that. If they're not open to that, for me personally, that's just a warning sign. That's just a if they're doing things because it's always been that done that way and they will continue to do things because that is the best way for doing things. That for me, that's a firm that's going to fall behind. So that's a firm that you'll never be able to create change in. Yeah. I think about it like basically like every time you go into a new firm environment, like if you change a firm, every firm has an ecosystem and it's very complex. There are basically norms in how firm leaders communicate. They have vocabulary they use. They have things that they believe are right and wrong answers, as we talked about. And over time, like when you live within that ecosystem, you learn it and you understand what the rules are and you play by those rules. It's the same in like your family. Like you you go to your house and your parents have rules and you go to your friend's house. There's topics you just, you stay away from. Yeah, you go to your friend's house and you're like, wow, they can talk about those things. No problem. That's amazing. I think that to be a change agent, you have to be inquisitive. Like we do this when we go out on a project site, like we'll go and scout it and, you know, walk the site and take photos and understand how the sun influences, you know, the angles on the property. It's the same thing. When you go into these firm environments, yeah. you you have to make observations and ask questions about why they're doing things and and why does the firm principal act like that in this scenario or like whatever it is. And so like when you start collecting that data, you can like kind of start to see patterns and things that are working and things that are not working. And I think that's really important to also like look outside of your ecosystem. So like that's why mm -hmm. being involved with the AI is so helpful. Like when you go to a firm tour, like I know AI San Francisco, Bay Area Young Architects, they do firm tours. So you can go and see how these other firms operate. It like it's really informative to being able to say, how do they handle this specific issue? And you can kind of compare it to your own way that your firm does it. And you see where there's like a different approach. You know, I think people get caught up like in this idea of like there are right answers and this is the way we do it and this is how it's done. And to to implement change as an individual, you you don't have to blow it up to change it. You can make mm -hmm. small change. You can be thoughtful in communicating and advocating and pointing out some of these patterns that you see. And for people who are patient, like you can make change over time. For people like me who are very impatient, it can you can want to push it through. But um, I think the most important places to make sure that you're advocating for change is anytime it impacts people, like in the staff environment or, you know, people working on your projects, people who are trying to figure out their career development, like take care of your team, like. That's really, in my mind, where the change is needed the most. Mm -hmm. Janine, I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about what your business is. I know you have a consulting, your own consulting business, but I want to hear more about that. Oh, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I think a lot of what you're talking about, I imagine you like sit down, 
you like sit your client down and you're like, la, 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 and you can like say all the stuff that you like just said, basically. Sort of, yeah, sort of. It varies. It's, yeah, I mean, I feel I'm a consultant. I work with architects and business owners who are trying to do good in the world and they have a really strong business idea and they're trying to run their company. And usually they're architects and they are connected to the architecture industry in some way. Um, basically, so my my training is part architecture, part business. And I blended that together to think about like business strategy. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I go in and I, I sit with firm leaders and I hear what they're struggling with. And I make observations about what's happening with the operational side of their firm or with the people part of their firm. I'll listen to sometimes the staff and try to tease out, Mm -hmm. like, what are they saying about what's actually going on in the firm? And I work with those leaders to design solutions to the business around solving Mm -hmm. those problems. So sometimes that's like, you know, people who know me, they know my background came out of marketing and actually Sylvia Kwan, who works with you, um, hired me for my first marketing gig. So sometimes it's in the realm of like marketing specific and communication specific things for the business. Um, I've also Mm -hmm. done a bunch of work with firm leaders around leadership and mentorship staffing challenges. And I also talk to business owners about overall business strategy when they're just, you know, sometimes they're so focused on their projects that they're not thinking about the business as a whole. And I've found success in kind of just being a someone who listens and helps them try to like problem shoot those challenges and come up with like really tangible solutions. How long do you usually work with a firm? Is it, do they hire you for like a specific, you know, short period of time to work on one aspect or is it like a long-term relationship? Most ideally, it's a long-term relationship, but it varies. And sometimes it's project-specific, like there's, you know, a specific task that needs to be completed. And sometimes, like Evelyn, it's very collaborative over a long period of time. And in those instances, I really get to understand the leader and the psychology going on with the leader. And like, there's like a trust that I get to develop with them over time where we we can talk about a wide range of issues and really get into the meat of like bigger, broader, long-term strategy to support their business. It's kind of like, I don't know, tiny bit like coaching and consulting (laughs) and therapy all in one. (laughs) I interviewed someone recently and she said they had hired a firm therapist at one point (laughs) who like came in and like talked to everyone and yeah, it sort of dissected like the state of their firm. (laughs) Yeah. And I learned how to do this by just working in so many different firms and working with so many different um, leaders. Like, you know, maybe my career up until I started my business full time wasn't totally what I wanted, but I got, I gained so much value out of being inside of firms and seeing how they operate and working at different types of firms. So looking at how large firms who have corporate structures are very different than medium-sized firms. And I just, you know, I really want to say that I'm, I'm grateful to all my mentors that like I worked with who have, who have basically been entrepreneurs in the architecture space and 
mm-hmm. mentored me in what it means to be entrepreneurial, what it means to go out and start a firm when you're in your 30s. And I feel like while I didn't grow into being a licensed architect who runs my own practice, I feel like I'm honoring them by being a firm o- or like a business owner in my 30s yeah. that, you know, is trying to figure out a different way to give back. Yeah. Evelyn, I wanted to hear how things at Slack are going and has your your role there changed throughout the past year um, since you started? Well, definitely, definitely just because <laughs> just because it, what the office is yeah. to everyone has changed. Um, and also because Slack, even with our product, we went through a revolution in terms of how, in terms of the employee experience that we want to have. So we were very much an, an office culture company. 5% of our workforce was remote of our then close to 3,000 global workforce was remote. Now we have essentially gone digital first, which means with the exception of, of a few teams, like people have really great flexibility of when they want to come into the office. And we're being mm-hmm. really conscientious about what that means in terms of equity and growth for individuals. And there, we're being really intentional about like everything that we do, what that means from an operations policy and process place from everything from decisions we're making about how we hire people. We've been hiring a lot more people remote, which means that I feel like we're getting the best talent no matter Mm -hmm. where they live, because inevitably you're going to have people that no matter how much you pay them, uh, their circumstances don't allow them to move to a place that is closer to the office, right? Because you're, I mean, that you're essentially uprooting an entire, you know, a person's entire life in yeah. those instances. So, so I feel like we're we're getting the best talent no matter where they're located. But our statistics have shown that our most recent, like the last year of hiring, we've hired, we've had greater diversity in the number of greater diversity in the demographics of the employees that have joined Slack than historically the past five years or or seven years that we've been a company. So right now I'm in that work stream of help us think about the employee experience from all of these different angles, even as we look to open up offices and and what does that, what does that mean? What does the change management look like? What behaviors do we want to encourage in our office that we might not have been seeing before? I was a workplace consultant, so I was in a lot of different companies' offices previous to going in-house at Slack. And we have this unusually library quiet culture in an an open office. There have been some architecture studios like that that I've walked into. I mean, it's kind of like (laughs) – so so the long and the short of it is if the office is really a place for collaboration, then can we evolve our behavior outside of of what – was previously happening in the open office? And can we create new environments just through even changing furniture and Mm -hmm. onboarding people in a different way that begins to encourage new behaviors in the office? So all of all of those, that's kind of the stratosphere of where I, I am. Slack is also going through an acquisition right now. So it's, it's interesting, you were talking about your acquisition, 
you know, from your company to a smaller firm to, you know, DLR, Slack, I think we're a little under 3,500 right now. Salesforce is 65,000. By 2025, they want to be 100,000. I had never thought I would be at a company, especially coming out of architecture firm that was ever that large. And it it is interesting to, it'll be interesting to see where I land on the other side. Yeah. Uh, I feel like as organizations grow, it's hard to remain, it's hard to keep that cross collaboration flow going because, because at a certain scale, some people have to specialize in order to just get things done. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know if my role will be nearly as cross-functional if I like um, on the other side, but we will see. What do you both feel will be the biggest challenge as architecture firms emerge out of the pandemic, assuming there's not, you know, a Delta variant that shuts everything down again, but you know, what will be the biggest challenges they emerge and what are your thoughts on, you know, how they can address what those challenges are? I think from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing really eager firm owners that are ready to get everybody back in the office. And I think there are going to be challenges uh, that there's, probably what the firm owner wants and then there's what their 30 employees want Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a gap between that and that has to either be worked out or there's going to be some strong arming going on and I think also every time we've had a conversation with someone getting up getting ready for season three like everybody's handling it differently so like yeah. there's so much variation from firm to firm and state to state about how people are going back that it's going to kind of take some time, I think, for all these different companies to transition. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about the bumpy road back. For all intents and purposes, I think all the research I'm doing into the hybrid practice is going to be relevant <laughs> for at least like five years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's one firms it's all everything i'm hearing coming out of firms is different firms are having problems communicating with one another firms are making decisions about being more flexible but like not setting up a digital hq to really enable that flexibility mm-hmm. to happen there're definitely a handful of firms who have like gotten all of their ducks in a row they they tend to be the smaller ones where the team is the firm and the firm mm-hmm. is the team. I don't know. There's all these various different approaches, you know, like so many days in the office or we want, we want one. If you have just joined the firm and are of a certain level, you have to spend every day in the office, but everyone else doesn't have to spend every day in the office. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we communicate, you know, our adoption of new technologies as a firm, like think about that. Like, if your firm is using Revit, does everyone actually know enough in your <laughs> firm to actually use the tool? So yeah. now if you think about creating a digital headquarters, like trying to get everybody on Teams or Slack or in Google, like there are firms that have adopted this. But then if you like do a survey, like not everyone is using the tool that the, the, the management behind like the behavior change that needs to happen to make it successful Mm -hmm. is not there. I I think the firms that are more agile 
that are open to prototyping how they're working and figuring out what works best for them Mm -hmm. coming out of it and is communicating and getting feedback from their employees are the ones that are going to be most successful. I feel like the firms that are trying to set up policies um, mm-hmm. in in a vacuum or, or, or trying to, to bend policies because that's what they think is right for the firm are going to struggle more. I mean, I talked to a small firm practitioner and they were like, oh, well, our people really love being in the office. So like they, they've, they've been coming back to the office, but we've been talking about having more flexible time. And we're worried that if we give them open-ended flexibility, then no one will show up. And I was like, but you, you just said that people like just said, <laughs> but it was like literally in back to back sentences. And I was like, do you just realize what you just told me? Um, so so I, I don't know. I, I would encourage firms to like actually kind of and, – and firms are doing a lot of surveys, but actually take that feedback in a meaningful way and create policies to collaboratively. I think people will understand the decisions you make behind why you have to be in the office X, Y, and Z days rather than just being told we need you in the office X, Y, and Z days. Like that's – bring everyone along for the ride. And I I feel like that's where architecture firms struggle the most. But if you tell everyone why you're making the decisions you are and you over communicate, which I think is a lesson that we all learned, like we could do better through the pandemic, I, I think no matter what, you'll be better off in the end. I think you're right that no one really knows what they're gonna, a lot of people don't know what they're gonna do yet. And everyone will end up doing different things. And I think it'll it'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out over the next like six months to two years. Right. Yeah. I do encourage though firms. I mean, here's where I really struggle with architecture firms. We are so incredibly creative when it comes to our projects, but when it comes to ex- like execution, like project management implementation, we are like we've this is the way we've done it, and we will continue to do it because this has worked for us. Like, why do we struggle? <laughs> so much to apply that same level of creativity to kind of how we go about doing our work. And maybe that's a rhetorical question, but like, for me, I'm just like, we're naturally creative. We are constantly asking our clients to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in our design process, yet we are, we cannot be uncomfortable in our own business. Yeah, Evelyn, I I think you said it really well. I think, you know, for me, like this next decade and certainly the next year as we come out of COVID, like I think firms and leaders need to be thinking about how we're redesigning this industry and our individual practices to value our employees and put our people at the forefront of how we think about our businesses. We're a profession that has been very top down for a long time. And I think that's starting to shift. And we need to make sure that our staff are a priority, that they're financially supported, that they are professionally supported, that they are emotionally supported. And in order for them to deliver their best services and design great projects, like show me an award-winning project where the staff didn't want to leave after CA. Show me mm-hmm. a firm that's able to retain their people and Where people who worked on the project felt like they really got something out of that project and it's beautiful and it's sustainable and it's 
you know, award-winning in order for us to make the contributions that I know architects want to make on society, in cities, with the climate. I think it has to start by valuing our staff and managing our projects in a way that treat our staff as well as we want to treat the communities that we're building these projects for. Do you have any thoughts or examples of what kind of services you think more architecture firms could or should offer that they're that they're not doing yet? It's got to come back to valuing, you know, what we are offering, like first and foremost, like be clear, like what are you what kind of projects are you going after? What work do you want to be doing? Are you taking on work just because you need work and you're worried that you're going to run off the cliff? Like you need to design your project pipeline to chase work that you want and and be persistent to bill for what you want, which I know is very mm-hmm. like optimistic and doesn't always happen. But when we drop our rates, when we are not actually figuring out the staffing required to execute the project and then coming up <laughs> short during CA hours, like, you know, learn from that and like shift it. And those those problems have to be addressed. And then I think the ad services, Evelyn, you probably can speak better to that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so I was just thinking, you know, a good example of this goes back to first season, our episode with Ilya Azaroff, like he serves underserved communities, and he still manages to have and maintain like a very successful, like and healthy employee relationship, even given his client type. So there's definitely like opportunities to find efficiencies. Mm-hmm. MK think started their strategy group because architects were brought to the table. Architects are are in brought to the table too late, right? Like usually our point of entry for the most part is an RFP or after clients have decided that they need an architect. So so for them strategy was a way of of getting in the door earlier and truly being a trusted advisor to an organization. There are all sorts of opportunities around just applying the project management skills that we have to reorganizing systems and operations orders, like operations processes and policies in organizations to to get on that front end, to move the needle and actually be the decision maker saying like, you, you can do this within your existing footprint or if if you want to be an organization that makes a greater contribution to the community, then you shouldn't be putting your office in class A built like office space, like on the, you know, the upper floors of the high rise tower, like, mm-hmm. like really like be in the, be in the mix to talk about like where, where people should be locating their buildings, um, not just be brought in afterwards. Yeah. There's so many opportunities out there if you think if you think more entrepreneurially about what you can be doing. And then, yeah. you know, everything that we've really talked about is all pre architectural services. I think I think there's a wealth of like how do we engage post handover? There's other opportunities, even at the residential level, even at the commercial level, at the institutional level, that we can help on the operations side. Plus, I feel like so many times we design buildings and then we don't get the opportunity to 
to go through the change management. So our buildings are, aren't used. And this happens a lot, I feel like in the public realm, like our buildings are never used the way they were Mm-hmm. The design, the de- yeah. the design intention behind it, yeah, you know. So, so there is a real space to play in there, as long as we can understand and are able to compute the value and the language that those business partners need to know to understand that, like, and actually, if you if you actually pay me for this change management for post occupancy services, if it will drive your bottom line because you will see added efficiencies in X, Y, and Z. But we have to be able to create metrics and data around that to kind of position mm-hmm. ourselves in that space. Yeah, an example from I just thought of this or remember this from DLR group is DLR does a lot of K through 12 like educational projects. And we've, you know, the firm has invested a ton of like money into research and development to like figure out the best ways that, you know, like what kind of spaces are most conducive to like low, younger education, um, like learning and, and things like that. And like understanding the best ways for people to learn and then using that to inform, you know, how they design these K through 12 projects. But then these spaces end up being so different than what a lot of like teachers like are used to or like know how to teach in. So then there's this whole other sort of service that they've developed where it is all about teaching like people how to use the spaces they've developed. So it's like you design a space and then you also have people pay you to teach you how to use it. Yeah, I know it's uh, I know it's really challenging and and especially working today, like we always feel like we have so many competing things on our plate. Like someone's emailing us, we have a project deadline, you know. And especially firm owners, I don't want to beat up on firm owners because I know running a business is really hard and there's a lot of complexity to manage. But I think what the point is, is when you intentionally manage around the complexity that you know is going to have an impact on your profit, it's important because it benefits so many other factors of your business. It allows you to scale. It allows you to treat your staff well. You can diversify into doing other things. Yeah. So I want to be respectful of both your time um, and just end with one last question. So what is something each of you finds really inspiring right now? One thing that I actually find inspiring is it is an employee market right now. I've been in a lot of uh, social media channels and social media groups that are you know, people are asking, like, you know, my firm is not being as flexible as I would like them to be. Is this an opportunity to switch firms? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think firms like, I'm kind of excited by the fact that the firms are going to have to face this challenge, like direct head on. Mm-hmm. And that and that employees are kind of making decisions with their feet. Definitely. I'm inspired by all the amazing talent out there that I mean, just doing the podcast, we get to speak to so many ambitious leaders who are doing different things mm-hmm. and thinking about things differently. And I think in every architecture firm out there, there is untapped potential Gen X, millennials, Gen Z coming up. I know, you know, I'm a little biased. I love the boomers a lot, but I do think that like, you know, as we start to create more space for Gen X and millennials to to have a voice inside of firms when they feel less restrained, they're going to do amazing things. I mean, 
there's so much potential when I think about the people that I know that are working inside of firms that I know when they become firm leaders, it's going to be a different industry entirely. And so that's what gets me excited. I mean, I, and I will say from my own experience, like personally, I have been wanting to be a business owner my entire life. And I've been working towards this moment. So for me, I'm really inspired because I feel like I'm finally getting to run my own business. I don't have somebody standing over me telling me that I can do this or I can't do that. And I'm doing it. And so I feel excited about the next five to 10 years of my life as I build my business. Oh, this has been so much fun. I know. What are you- <laughs> I feel like it went by so quickly. <laughs> I know. What are you inspired by, Catherine? Yeah. What are you inspired um, by? I am inspired by, I feel like I've seen a lot of movement since last summer with firms and, you know, issues surrounding equity and inclusion. And a lot of it does feel like, sometimes it does feel a little performative, but I do feel like there is like slow forward moving progress. And I feel like it'll become more and more of a business issue as well. Like we're seeing in more RFPs, you know, like clients are asking, like, what's your policy? Like, what are your, what's your stance on EDI? You know, so like the more clients requested, the more I feel like firm owners will be like, oh, like we have to, even if it's like not for, you know, like the morally correct reasons, if it's like, even if it's driven by like a business decision, I feel like that'll still ultimately be good. And in my mind, the evolution has kind of been, you know, like sustainability in architecture where, yeah, like maybe back in the day, a handful of firms like truly believed in sustainability. But then once there's like a business reason to like now everyone has like a sustainability like tab on their website. And a lot of it is still performative, but I feel like that has become sort of accepted within the practice. And I feel like um, I'm hoping that issues around equity inclusion will get there as well. I'm hopeful. It's slow. There's a lot of backwards thinking too, but I think we'll get there. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm also inspired by Gen, the Gen Z people because I feel like when I was in architecture school, I just sort of, you know, accepted whatever was being like thrown at me. Um, but I feel like like kids these days, they call things out. I feel like I hear about students, you know, like protesting what kind of classes are being taught in architecture school so I feel like the next generation is even more vocal about like not standing for like you know the old ways than like millennials are so I feel like they'll also be a driving force for change. Thank you Janine for suggesting that we bring Catherine on. I really enjoyed having her on as our guest and our moderator for the season opener. Yeah I'm so happy to do it because it's funny like she and I both worked at the same firm, but at different times. So we were connected to all the same people and have a very deep understanding of the culture of that firm. And But we never got to work together. So this was kind of a nice way to make that happen. Absolutely. So what are you excited about either for this season or kind of as the second half of 2021 wraps up? I'm really excited about the fact that we've We've already done 40 episodes. I feel like we have learned so much through the process of creating a podcast. It's taken some time, but our confidence, I think, is much higher than it was when we started out. I think we've figured out like what works and what doesn't work with the podcast. And, And 
we're starting to really think about specific research topics that we want to go further on, which is really cool. So I, I feel like we're starting to move in a really strong direction in terms of going deeper with this work. I'm interested in going deeper, but I'm also interested in kind of all the threads that like the additional threads that have kind of emerged that we can begin to pull on and uh, just other areas that we can explore. I think in in light of like continuous improvements as a whole, like there is just for me, it's just like it's never ending, but in the best way possible. That just means that we can always continue to get better. I think that's a good point. And like, I think I'm most inspired by the fact that there's so much more that we can continue to do with the podcast. It's not, it wasn't like we hit a, a end to this journey. Like, I feel like this journey is just kind of beginning. Yes. And I think that's a great place to end our opening episode for season three. Thank you for joining us. We have a new episode coming out every Thursday. Thank you for listening and tune in next week. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this podcast episode. Visit twinmotion.link slash disrupted and try Twinmotion for free. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. You can find all of our past episodes by visiting practiceofarchitecture.com backslash podcast. You can also get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of ARCH. And you can join us in the POA lab. You can apply to be a part of the Practice of Architecture lab by visiting Practice of Architecture backslash lab, where you will have more opportunities to interact with us and all of our podcast guests. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about all of the podcasts and video content connected to this community by visiting gablmedia.com. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about.